But we're in James chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, why don't you lift up your hand and we'll get a Bible to you. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 14. Uh, Once you get open to that, let's stand together and we'll read the text together. And uh, we'll only make it through verse 17 today in our study, but we're going to read the whole context. James 2, 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute, by the way, you guys don't have to read out loud. I know there's some confusion there. I was like, is there an echo in the microphone? <laughs> We've tried to all read together before, and it just doesn't work. I'm sorry. (laughs) Actually, it was doing pretty good. (laughs) If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit inspiring James, the brother of Jesus, to write this and to uh, be carried along by the Holy Spirit and, and to confront the, the problems that were going on among the Jewish Christians around him. And Lord, we know that the word that he had for them is a word for us in America today. Lord, as this could be so easily misunderstood if context wasn't known and if the context of scripture wasn't known and cultural and literal and grammatical and all of those things weren't looked into, Lord, we could be quickly led away. And so we pray that you would uh, speak to us and teach us today in truth, rightly, Lord. We pray for humility, God, that if you would speak something to us about our customs, our life practice, our lifestyles, our our Christianity, Lord, that you would correct us today, Lord, that we would have the humility to repent and to turn to you. Do a work in our midst as we study this incredibly important chapter that that really many eternities in this room hinge upon. We would pray just for the moving of your spirit in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, go ahead and be seated. 
do a Google search on dangers in the 21st century and you'll find a host of articles and videos that will keep you entertained and concerned for hours. Everything from health to the environment to, uh, to our nutrition to education to government to terrorism to military. I mean, uh, it could really give us gray hairs and keep us sweating and staying up at night. But all of those dangers that you would find pale in comparison to the danger that James warns us of in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and that is the danger of a dead, empty faith. A dead, empty faith. Three times in this section, James would tell us that faith without accompanying works is a dead, useless faith. This is a sobering book, it's a sobering chapter, it's a sobering section. It's right up there with what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, Jesus very soberingly tells us that there will be people who say, have a profession, it comes out, Lord, Lord, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I know the orthodox belief of the church. I do many different actions for you. And Jesus tells them two things. One, he says, get away from me. I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. And the other is, away from me. I never knew you. You don't do the will of my Father in heaven. And so there's sin of omission and their sins of commission not doing what the lord tells us to do and doing what the lord tells us not to do actions are important just as important as a confession or profession of faith and james is getting to the point today and next week as well that it is possible to deceive ourselves in the issue of faith This is so important. There's been a lot of prayer over this morning because these are matters of eternal significance. There are people in the American church, in the Prineville church, and even in our church that have deceived themselves, that they are born again, that they are Christians, that they are followers of Jesus. And yet when you really look at their life, make it personal today, if you were to look at your life, Would there really, truly be a saving faith there? It's possible for someone to say they have faith in Jesus, not to actually have the kind of faith in Jesus that saves. And what's shouted out from American Christianity today is that that is unkind to even suggest. That's judgmental. And I would submit that this is actually one of the most kind, gracious things anyone could ever do is to speak this kind of truth into your life as it could save you from the fires of hell and separation from God for all of eternity. And that it is actually a type of judgment that the Lord says, welcome, 
welcome it into your life. Just because you have a background in Christianity or an interest in faith doesn't mean that you're actually a believer and that you're actually a Christian. James is going to address someone here who considers themselves very religious. In James chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If any one of you thinks that you are religious, so there's a think, there's a profession of religion, and then there's actually an action where you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart. This one's religion is useless. Then there's a test for pure religion. It's not the only test, but it's a test. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Or as Kevin showed us last week, if you prefer people because of their wealth, because of their race, because of their background, then there should be more red flags in your life that perhaps you are not a true Christian and you've been deceiving yourself. Now, what James is not comparing in this chapter in this book is faith versus deeds, but he's comparing true faith with false faith. And he'll tell us that true faith is accompanying by good deeds, but false faith is barren, dead, and useless. This is a crucial contrast. It matters for eternity. Now, I want to clarify today that we are saved from our sin, from ourselves, from condemnation, from eternity in hell, separated from the Lord. We are saved on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His perfect life, living a life that I could never live and I haven't lived. His sacrificial atoning death where he took my place. It should have been me that died. He died for me. His blood that was shed was a spotless blood and it was acceptable as a sacrifice for my sin. We are saved on the basis that Jesus did not stay dead in that ground, but three days later rose from the dead in power just like he said he would. And that resurrection life and new power, that's given to me now by believing in that. So we are saved on the basis of Jesus' works, what he has done. We are saved by the means of faith. Okay, the basis is Jesus, the means is that it's through faith in him, and it's for good works. It's for good works, works that are honoring to him and joyful for us. We want to clarify that because as we get into this text, it's a little bit confusing, especially where you might get to next week. And if you were just to take this verse by itself from chapter 2 and you were to say, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You could start all kinds of false religions out of just that verse. We've been given more than just that verse. We've been given the rest of the book of James. We've been given the rest of chapter 2. We've been given the other epistles written by other apostles, epistles by apostles, Stuff writes itself. Now, in historical Christianity, there came a point where the church, which at the time was the Roman Catholic Church, they had a council, the Council of Trent, and they they've became more lax in this at the Second Council of Trent, but it was written in the church. If anyone should say that justification, that is being declared right with God, 
That justification is nothing but confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sin for Christ's sake, or that it is confidence alone by which we are justified. Let him be accursed. There came a point in church history where it was written out by the church that if you were to say that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that's it, then, then you would be called accursed. At the time, you were to become part of the church for salvation. You were to become underneath the leadership of, of these guys who would explain the word to you or else you couldn't be saved. It was matters of salvation. And you had to do all these other deeds to be saved. And then the reformers raised out. Coming out of the Catholic Church, they would say, it's not by works that we're saved. Let's come back to the scripture where you'll see that it's by the grace of God through faith in God that we are saved. And that began the Reformation period. Now, as much as we love the Reformers, it, it's wonderful to know that it was before the Reformers. It was in the Apostles and it was in the early church uh, fathers that truth was still championed. We have Clement of Rome who wrote, And we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works with which we have brought in holiness of heart. But by faith, through which from the beginning, Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. That's been the creed since the early church. We are justified by faith in what Jesus has done. Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher, wrote, The patriarch Abraham himself, before receiving circumcision, had been declared righteous on the score of faith alone. He believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Jerome, the one who translated the scripture in the Latin Vulgate, writes, God justifies by faith alone. It's been said, though, as time goes on, that the gospel has become so diluted, if it were a medicine, it would heal no one. And if it was a poison, it would kill no one. We've come away from orthodox faith and belief We've got a watered-down gospel so that on two sides of a coin, you've got people that are saying, I don't need Jesus because I've got my works and I'm a part of a church and that's all I need. And then you've got people over here who are saying, oh man, I just believe in who God is and it doesn't matter if my life reflects that. These are two different opposites here and they're both dangerous. Both James and Paul combat this one, and both James and Paul combat this one. There is a man that James is addressing here, a hypothetical Christian with a hypothetical faith. He says he has faith. And James says, I hope you realize it is easy to talk about faith. Every now and then a celebrity that we all know gets converted to Christianity and there's just all kinds of blogs and articles and everyone's stoked about that happened recently uh Shea LaBeouf I think his name is he's on fury and I mean I was stoked I'm like oh man that's awesome Brad Pitt led this guy to Jesus and I was like okay and what we just said is we were talking about that like man that would be incredible if he came to faith in the Lord Jesus but we also said the proof will be in his life and how it's lived out from this point on and I don't have any opinion on that that's just the truth the proof, whether it's in Hollywood or in Prineville, the proof will be seen in how this life is lived out. It's much more than a profession of faith. 
there needs to be a possession of faith. And that possession of faith will bleed out into all of our life circumstances. It's so easy in a study like this to pipe up with one of the favorite verses of all Christendom, judge not from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, judge not. Don't look at my life, don't look into my life, don't encourage anything in my life, just judge not. You got to understand that Jesus wasn't saying don't ever encourage or exhort one another and don't confront each other in each other's sin. The rest of the scripture says that he does say to do that. He was saying don't be condemning to people because you are not the ultimate judge. You can be fruit inspectors because that very chapter goes on where he says you will know a false prophet by the things that he speaks and the life that he lives. You will know a tree by their fruit. You will know a thorn bush because it'll have thorns on it. You'll know a fruit tree because it has fruit on it. So be fruit inspectors. And James invites us into that fruit inspection, both of our lives and the lives of others. You know, there's always a guy who's poking people in their soft spots and he has them say, hey, judge not, judge not. James is that guy. We're going to be in this time and time again in the book of James. And so let's get into this uh, verse 14 today where we have the principle laid out. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? What good is it if someone makes this confession or profession? And he's asking the church, and so I would ask you today, What advantage and benefit is it if someone merely has a profession of faith? He says he has faith, but he does not have works. Is it any good? Or can that type of faith save him? Well, before we get throwing out answers, we want to know what does James mean when he says faith? What does James mean when he says works? Paul and James Both use this word faith in their epistles. They both use the word works in their epistles. They both use the word justify and justification in their epistles. And and so let's look at that. We'll look at it even more next week, but for our study today, we'll look at it uh, as well. Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, spoke of a saving faith. A saving and genuine faith that would lead to good works. Works are a byproduct, a fruit of saving faith. When James speaks of faith, he speaks of a mere profession of faith here. Someone that's just claiming to have a faith. Now, if you've been a Christian very long and you've read the New Testament, you probably know that that it appears that the book of Romans and the book of James are contradicting each other. You know, it seems that Paul's just championing this gospel of salvation by faith, by grace, apart from any sort of works. And then it appears that James is over here saying, you got to have works, you got to have works, you got to have works. And he even throws out a, you know, a verse 24 on us there. And so it appears, man, they're just, how is this even in the same Bible? They're contradicting each other. Some have said that it appears that, that Paul and James are standing toe to toe and they're Fighting each other, fighting each other's gospels. It was J. Vernon McGee that said they're not standing toe to toe fighting each other's gospel. They're standing back to back, fighting different enemies who are attacking the same gospel. You've got to understand that James is writing to a different problem, a different people, 
a different group of attackers. You've got to understand that Paul is writing to a different problem, a different people, a different group of attackers. But they're both defending the same gospel of salvation by the grace of God through faith in what he's done for good works to the glory of God and our joy. Now, Paul, on this end, in the book of Romans and Galatians, is speaking to those who come from a Jewish background who would say, I find my innocence before God in the works that I do. I'm a good person, I follow the law of Moses, and I am righteous before God because I'm a good dude. Okay, That's who Paul is writing against. Over here, you've got also a group of Jewish people that James is writing to who are so fed up with works that they've completely abandoned them at all. And so they say, well, I believe in Jesus and the grace of God and that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sins. But I'm going to adopt a form of Christianity called easy believism, where all I have to do is raise my hand at a conference or come forward and sign a card or something like that. And, uh, and you know, my life doesn't have to reflect anything of Christ- Christianity, uh, of the word of God. It doesn't matter because... I put my faith in and my trust in Jesus. That's also a problem. That's a problem that James is combating. Our nation is in a place where we see both of those problems in full swing. Everyone thinks they're a Christian because of their heritage or because of their family or because of their nation. Paul speaks to those who justify themselves by their works, keeping the Mosaic law, James is speaking to a group who claim faith but have no works of love or mercy following after their lives. And you need to know right now, the context of the book of James as well as the whole of the New Testament and the Old is that James is not saying that you can be made righteous by keeping the law or being part of humanitarian aid. He's already told us many times, James chapter 1 verse 18 through 25, Uh, James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that you cannot be righteous by keeping the law. He affirms the writings of Paul in the book of Romans, specifically chapters 3 and 6. And so, can a man who claims to have faith, a faith without actions, a faith without works of righteousness, a faith without love and charity and grace, Can he be saved? And is he useful at all, as the Phillips translation says, if his actions do not correspond with his faith? In James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, James says that a man should avoid being a hearer of the word without being a doer of the word. And here in James chapter 2, James says that a man must avoid being a speaker of the word who neglects being a doer of the word. So don't just be a hearer of the word, and don't just be a speaker of the word, be a doer of the word. Now, we come to this works. There's two types of works in the scripture. First of all, there is a work that is fueled by the flesh, and this does not honor God. It's self-righteous works that are born out of self-power, self-motivation, to the end of self-glorification and self-righteousness. That is an offense to God. That is what Paul writes about in the book of Romans, is this self-righteousness, works of the flesh. 
But James speaks of a different type of work. It's a good work. It is a work that is a fruit of faith. A fruit of faith. It's a natural outflow that comes from the springs of the Holy Spirit pouring out in your life. It's an outflow of love because you know and have experienced the source of love. It's an outflow of grace because you've experienced the grace of the Redeemer. It's an outflow of mercy because you've been shown mercy. Just as a tree doesn't need to strain to produce the fruit, so too a Christian doesn't have to hunker down and really get it done. No, the Holy Spirit has been given to the Christian to transform the will and to empower us to do things that are pleasing to God. This is a good work. It is a fruit of faith and it brings glory to God. Sometimes Paul would write about works in the same way as James. In Romans 1 verse 5, he speaks of obedience of faith. It's an outflow of faith is obedience. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul speaks of works of faith. And in Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul says, What matters is faith working through love. That is a good kind of faith. So according to both James and Paul, faith creates works and works complete faith. I love what Luther said about faith. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. I like that. It's funny, though, because James really struggled with liking, uh, I'm sorry, Martin Luther really struggled with liking the book of James. He called it a straw epistle. He considered the book of Romans and Galatians to be golden epistles, and he was like, this, oh, he just struggled with what James was trying to communicate. He said, I almost threw old Jimmy in the fire a time or two. But it's funny because even Martin Luther says, man, we need these works to be poured out of our life. They are a fruit of faith. We are not saved by good works. Amen? Amen. But we are saved for good works. We're not saved by our own deeds, our own actions, our own rules, religion, or rituals. But we are saved for good action. We're saved for action so that we can take this good news, this gospel, this love, this grace to the farthest ends of the world. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is right after Jesus says that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I'll tell them I never knew you because you didn't do the will of my Father in heaven and you practice unrighteousness. He then goes on to say, Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, you might underline that, does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, and you might underline does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. 
And so Jesus emphasized a point similar to James that there are people that hear but do not do. And there are people that hear and they do. And the results of those different actions from hearing the word of God, the, the consequences are either wonderful and safe or disastrous. Matthew 21, 28 through 32, Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And so uh, you can read the rest on your own there. But uh, essentially, Jesus is telling us that profession and actions coupled together are so important. You can say, I go and I obey, Lord. But if you don't go and obey, you're not doing the will. Or you can say, man, I really struggle with that. I don't know if I can do that. But the power of the Holy Spirit moves you to do that in obedience. And you're the one that's doing the will of the Father. There are those that hear the sayings of Jesus and believe. And they will be doers. And they will be goers. Titus 1.16 says, There's a group of people who profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Can that type of faith save a man? Can faith save him? Can that type of faith, a faith that is, results in being abominable actions of disobedience and being disqualified for every good work, is that a saving faith? A professed faith that is false? Paul says in the Corinthians uh, Chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2. The gospel by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a vain belief. There's a belief that does not hold fast to the gospel. It is a belief without behavior. It is so dangerous because it so closely resembles the real thing, but it is fake, it is false, dead, useless, counterfeit. Can that faith save? Thomas Mason writes, that little something that looks like religion, someone who appears at church after the summons of the bell. By the way, we need to get a bell. How awesome would that be? They're the church in town that has a bell. We don't even have a bell tower, but we've got a bell. Get on that, Kevin. They show up to church after the summon of the bell to repeat words because others do the same. To hear what is delivered from the pulpit with little attention or affection unless something occurs that is suited to exalt self or soothe conscience. And then to run with eagerness back out the door into the world again. Mason speaks of a group of people who the only way you can get them to listen to the word of God is if you tell them that they are great and tell them that they are okay. That's why there's arenas in this country that are filled with 30,000 people. Because preachers are telling people that they in and of themselves are good and okay. And he just pats them on the back and speaks things that will tickle their ears. And the Lord says, if someone tells you you're good and you're okay, run away from them. They're peddling the word of God for great profit. James tells us, take the test. 
If someone claims that he has faith, but there's not evidence of faith, this faith cannot save them from uh, from hell. Faith without works cannot save. It quite literally does not work. Faith without works doesn't work. Understanding this is important because James is not contrasting someone who has an immature faith with someone who has a mature faith. Not what we're talking about here. Not talking about someone who has a nominal faith with someone who has an authentic faith. Not what we're talking about here. James is telling us you either have faith that saves or you don't. There's no in-between. If there's no fruit in your life, there is no faith in your life. It's not a contemporary problem, but it's something that's shown itself in all generations of the church. There are vast numbers of individuals who went to camp, to a crusade, to a service. They raised their hand, they came down front, they filled out a card, yet they do not live a holy life. They have no interest in being part of a local church body helping the helpless, taking the good news to their neighbor, let alone across the world. In fact, they live a life that is exactly the same as their non-Christian friends. There's not much that distinguishes them. And what does our Bible say about that? Our Bible says that the Lord will correct an individual who is truly saved. He will come into their life and he will chasten and discipline and correct and lead them out of living a life like that. The Spirit of God will lead an individual towards obedient living. The Spirit of God will bring brothers and sisters in Christ around this person to help discipline. And that's not a bad thing. Hebrews chapter 12 says us that the Lord disciplines those that he loves like a father disciplines his son. And if there's an individual who claims to be a Christian but doesn't welcome discipline and doesn't believe in discipline, they are illegitimate and not sons. The Lord is in the business of sanctifying us and not letting us stay in a rut, rotting in self-deception. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 says that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen? We love verses 8 and 9, don't we? By grace, through faith, not of works. You can't brag before God. What are you going to say? You're a sinner. You're saved by grace, the unmerited gift of God. That's wonderful. But it doesn't end at verse 9. It goes on to verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saving faith is entrusting all of our lives to Jesus, not only as our Savior to save us from sin and to save us from hell, but also as our Lord. Peter says God has made this Jesus both Christ and Kyrios, That means both Savior and Lord. It's coming to him with the belief that we have been saved. We've been given new life in him to live for him and to represent him. Do not mistake a general acknowledgement of God's existence or even the uniqueness of Jesus for a saving faith. Maybe in Sunday school you learn the acrostics for faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all. 
I trust in him. Perhaps you've heard of Charles Blondin, who was an acrobat back in the 1850s and 60s. This guy was incredible, but he's most famous for um, putting a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, about 160 feet above the falls. And this is 1860s, right? Pre-Civil War era. And he would, you know, first of all, he'd walk across with his little pole thing, and everyone would cheer, and it got a great big crowd. And then he started doing it backwards and doing backflips, and the crowd grew, and the crowd grew. He actually did it on stilts across this thing. I don't know how that worked, but he did that. He actually had this little stove that he took onto the tightrope with him, and he cooked omelets on the stove and tossed them down to the boats below him, and they ate the omelets that he cooked. But two different stories come to my mind about Charles Blondin. The first one is that uh, he would walk across with a wheelbarrow, and as he got to the other side, a woman shouted out, You're incredible! You're the best acrobat of all time, Charles Blondin! And he said, Ma'am, get in the wheelbarrow! And she said, "Uh Uh-uh, not happening. (laughs) Same thing happened as he crossed, and he, he said, Everyone's cheering. He says, Do you guys think I can go across with a man on my back? Yeah, woo, yeah, woo, woo. And he looks to like the most ardent follower in the whole crowd and he says, Sir, will you get on my back? Oh, you don't really think that I'll risk my life going, No way, I'm out. And then finally it was Blondin's own manager who'd risked everything in his possession to, to follow Charles Blondin anyways that ended up getting on his back and crossing the Niagara Falls. But that is really an example of true faith. You're incredible. I bet you could take someone in a wheelbarrow across that thing. Get in the wheelbarrow. I don't really think that you could take someone across in a wheelbarrow. You know? How about our Christian faith? Oh, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. You fill us with the power of the Spirit to go into the darkness and to preach the good news, and it'll transform. You've given us powers over snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will harm us. We go out in your name. We don't really do that. No, that's no, no. (laughs) Oh, Lord, you call us to holiness. I will set nothing wicked before, I'll set things wicked before my eyes, you know. I mean, is our life reflecting our profession of faith? Just the prayers that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction into any areas of our life that we hold dearly to ourselves and say, this little part is for me. It's not for you, Lord. He would say, all or nothing. All or nothing. Quickly, the example of this in the daily life, in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. You don't need to answer. If a brother or sister, this is speaking of a fellow believer, were to do good to all, but as Galatians says, especially to the household of faith. We have a brother or a sister who come to us poorly clothed, famished, in need of just provisions for basic human survival. And you who claim to be a Christian say, depart in peace, be warm and be filled. Move along. Leave me alone. Get going. I'm thinking good thoughts about you and I'm praying for your warmth and your nourishment. I sure hope something happens that helps you out. Those are so cheap words. 
It's easy to say, but to never intend to do. Words that in and of themselves cannot help hunger and cannot help cold. This person says they're a Christian and they just need stuff for basic survival. Physical nourishment, clothing, something for modesty. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love because he laid down his life us. Praise God. Amen. And we also ought to lay down our life for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brothers in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's implied that the love of God does not abide in this person. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. John gives us a test if we're truly believers. If we see a brother or sister who's in need and we shut ourselves up, the love of God is not displayed in our life. How could it be abiding there? And we'd say, get away. I hope something good happens, but it's not coming from me. John tells us that that is assurance. It is a test of assurance if you're a, a real believer or not. Proverbs three twenty seven and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Guys, I feel that we have room to grow in this area as a church. When the email goes out or the Facebook message gets posted, that there's a person who's been in our church for years who has nowhere to stay tonight. Does anybody have a room for them? And nobody replies. They'll be out in the cold. They'll be out in the rain. They don't have food. They don't have money. We know who they are. They've been a part of this church. No replies. I like all these jumping kitty videos, though, you know. Guys, there's something wrong. And just that the Holy Spirit would just move in us that, man, when the next encouragement goes out that someone from our body needs help, we would need to fight each other as to who gets to help this person. No, I get to. You got to have him in your house last time. No, I was the one that you, you got to take him to McDonald's. I'm taking him to Barney Prides. You know, you know, we're just like, just, man, but like Luther said, before there's even a question of if, how should, we, how should I help this? It's already done. I was so blessed by Wednesday night that happened. A man came into our midst. He's been here probably four or five times. Struggling in life. Struggling with all sorts of conditions and problems. Just got out of jail that night. Lost everything he had. Confessing stupid decisions. Confessing, I know I need Jesus. I don't know. I got nowhere to sleep tonight. And just to watch people rally. To get him food. To get him shelter. To get him money to help pay that cell phone bill so he can get life going again to bring a giant columbia brand new jacket to warm him and as i drove him to his place of lodging that night he said i'm just so encouraged that people have loved me tonight praise god for that matthew 14 15 and 16 when it was evening his disciples came to jesus saying this is a deserted place the hour is already late send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food but jesus said to them they do not need to go away you give them something to eat 
James is telling us that if you're a true disciple of Jesus, you ought to love people like Jesus loves them. And in Matthew 25, at the end of the age, there will be a judgment for those who are living on the earth after the tribulation period. The Son of Man will come in glory and all of the holy angels with him. He will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Notice that this is not some initiative born out of their own flesh. It was the blessing of the father upon them. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was a stranger. That was convicting to me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you and are naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will go to the goats and he will say, I was Lonely, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was naked, I was imprisoned, and you never came, and you never helped. Away from me. Now the false conclusion is that to get to heaven, you have to give clothes and food and have some sort of a prison ministry. That is not the grounds to get into the kingdom of heaven. That is the fruit that the kingdom of heaven has already come into your life, and now it's being poured out to the world. Your love needs to be without hypocrisy, Paul says. Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name becomes he belongs to Christ. Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There's a debate in the church right now about humanitarian aid and social justice causes. Is it okay to be a part of something that gives water to people who don't have water or give medicine to people that don't have medicine and to never share the name of Jesus? Of course, it's okay to do that. How many things do you do in your life and you never say the name of Jesus? But, of course, we aim to always tell people about Jesus. We aim to ornament the gospel with humanitarian aid. Charles Spurgeon said, if you want to give a hungry man a sandwich, wrap it in a tract. Wrap it in a gospel tract. Preach the gospel. Give In mercy, love like people love. Closing with verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Lonely faith is a dead faith. This type of faith is no faith at all. People who claim to be Christians but fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. Their faith is dead useless, ineffective. (laughs) I remember growing up in a Baptist church that had a really stellar worship band and they sang an a cappella song one day that said, faith without works is like a screen door on a submarine. Anybody? Somebody? (laughs) There was a cricket chirping at that church too that day. (laughs) Thank you, Shannon. It's useless, of course. Johnny, you remember the song. I think you were on that band. (laughs) Second Peter 
1, 5 through 9. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So we start out with faith, virtue, which is moral excellence. From virtue, to, uh, we move to knowledge. From knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. From perseverance, godliness. Godliness to brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. If these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and forgotten that he's cleansed from his old sins. I would encourage you today to examine your life. What fruit is there of your profession of faith? Has there been mercy ministry? Has there been holiness? Has your tongue been tamed? Have you been helping those who can never help you back? These type of works are tests that James gives us to know if we're born again and truly believers. We'll have the worship team come on up. Two quotes I close with. First, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, writes in a book called Mercies of Ministry, writes, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or in addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the sign of genuine faith. Charles Spurgeon said about the saints in his church who fed the hungry and clothed the naked. In Matthew 25, referring to that passage as well, the saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to it. They did it because it was their delight to do good. They did good for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. May that be our heart today. Let's go ahead and stand. Lord God, we invite you in our midst in the power of the Spirit as the word of God has gone forth. We pray that you would convict and rebuke and edify and equip us for works of ministry, Lord. Lord, I am convicted of just ways that I try to get around helping the hopeless and loving the unlovely, God. Don't let me get away with it, Lord. Correct me, God. Lord, may our homes, may our money, our wallets, our food, our resources, our vehicles, our time be laid at your feet today is not ours, but truly yours. We pray for those in this place that have profession of faith, but Lord, there's been no fruit and evidence in their lives. We pray that you would break them, break their heart for the things that break yours, God. For those that have come to this place and maybe they've never had a profession of faith, and today would be the day that they would put their faith in you, Lord, to save them from their sins and their wickedness, their rebellion against you. That they could have a clean slate. That today they could exchange their robes of scarlet and, and filth for robes of white righteousness. And if that's you today, we encourage you to just by faith, like a child right now, let the Lord clean you. Just receive that right now. I receive the cleansing from Jesus. I receive a clean heart, yet a new heart. 
I put my trust in you, Jesus. You sacrificed yourself for me. That I'm the one that should have died, I heard today, but you died for me. What kind of love is that? I receive that love today. I receive the mercy of Jesus. And if you're praying that right now, you can even pray, so Lord, let me be merciful. I receive your forgiveness today, Jesus. So let me be forgiving. I receive that you have pursued me, Jesus. And so today, Lord, work in me a heart that would pursue others who are lost. And if you're praying this right now, you can pray out right now. And Lord, the lesson today I don't want to just profess to have trusted in you right now. I want to live a life that trusts in you. So blessed in first service to hear the song that was chosen. And I don't know if they knew that this is what would be taught today, but we're going to sing a lyric that says, What can I say? What can I do? Lord, you've said and done all these wonderful things to redeem me. Now what can I say? What can I do but offer this heart completely to you? During this song, we're going to have the elders up here and the elders' wives. We're going to have the core group leaders and gal core group leaders up here. And we want to be available today. If you're here and you just sense that the Lord has been touching on your heart today, that you've been a professor of Christianity, but your faith has been empty. It hasn't had works with it. We would invite you to come up today and just acknowledge just kind of one of the first works of the Holy Spirit working in you. You would come and move and come forward and just ask for prayer that that the Lord would bear fruit in your life that you would begin to work powerful deeds that are worthy of salvation that's been given to you. Maybe you're here today and you're a part of a family that just recently has been moved by the Spirit to be living for Jesus. We'd invite you to come with your home, to come forward, and we'll pray for your home. As the Lord impresses upon you today, come forward. I just would beg you, if you've been convicted by the Spirit today of having an empty, dead faith, that faith cannot save. And we would plead with you today to repent, to confess that to the Lord, and to ask Him today to work works of righteousness in you. Come forward and receive prayer, receive encouragement, receive love today. It'll be a wonderful uh, time of remembrance, a memorial stone in your family's life and in your life to make a stand, a commitment for Jesus today. We invite you up.